Praise God for the great opportunity, the precious moments He has given us today to open His Scriptures together and to behold the Holy Word of God. I encourage you to turn in your Scriptures to Matthew 27. Our two main passages today are Matthew 27, 62 through 66. There's an interlude where the resurrection account is given in Matthew's Gospel. And then we have another window behind the scenes of the powers that be scheming and conniving in Matthew 28:11 through 15. We'll read all the way through that portion in our reading this morning, but we'll focus primarily on the enemies of Christ and their legacy today under the title, Last Ditch Effort. And the title means to convey at the very apex and the conclusion of Jesus' life and ministry, the enemy through his use of his wicked servants, the Pharisees, Pilate, the uh, high priests, chief priests, and so on, they give an all-out, last-ditch, last-ditch, frantic attempt to thwart the plan and the decree of God in the final work of His own Son. Their works are defeated, and we celebrate the defeat of our enemy, Satan himself, and all who align themselves with his authority in this triumphal chapter of the gospel. But it also behooves us to pay close attention to the characteristics of the enemies of Jesus, even in our text today. And we'll tie that in with last week's message from Psalm 70 as well, where we talked about the characteristics and the consequences of the enemies of Christ, as well as, conversely, the characteristics of those who love and appreciate His work on Calvary. Stand with me, if you would, and if you're able, with your Bible open again to Matthew 27. 62, and listen as we behold the immortal word of God. Next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The aim of this morning's message is to behold and proclaim. In the darkest of circumstances, or the darkest of circumstances, only serve to magnify the greatness of God. You might wonder, last night we were doing devotions, and I asked the question of my children, if God could have stopped the crucifixion of Jesus, 
if Jesus himself could indeed have saved himself, why did he not do it? You remember the words that the mockers chose to revile him? Chapter 27, verse 42, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Now this language was ironic because Jesus himself indeed had the power to save himself from the cross. So the question I raised in family devotions last night was, if Jesus could do it, why did he not? And the answer, of course, and Israel rightly answered, because God had a plan. Because God had a plan. Behold, and pro- we behold and proclaim in the gospel today that because God has a plan in each and every circumstance, that the darkest of them only serve in the end at the ultimate accounting to magnify the greatness of God. And at Jesus' darkest hour, this truth was no exception. During this moment where the last-ditch efforts of the nefarious forces who sought to mock, condemn, and crucify Christ, history proves and is recorded before us that God used even these horrific moments to magnify His great name. As the circumstances and conflicts come to a head in the final days of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, there are three illegitimate authorities conspiring against Christ to dismiss Him as an imposter. They're in our text today listed as the priests, the Pharisees, and Pilate. The rulers of the people, religious and civil, priests, Pharisees, and Pilate, they scheme together. Even though they have rendered themselves illegitimate, they want to say that Christ Himself is the imposter. And so their scheme is meant to spin the narrative exactly in this way. In our text today, to ensure their influence and authority, we see what they do. They take this opportunity at the expense of Jesus Christ, His work, and His message to try as best they can to ensure, to protect their own influence, their own authority, the idolatry of their own self-interest. And so we see them scheming in our text. As I was thinking about this this week, I wanted to give you an illustration from many years prior, millennia in fact, from Elijah's own prophetic ministry. Think of that moment, that famous moment in the Old Testament where there's a showdown. It's 450 prophets of Baal on one side and one lone faithful prophet of God on the other. These events at Mount Carmel, they foreshadow in a sense these events that are going on in Jesus' ministry and in His uh, gospel act on Calvary in our text today. Think of it. One man faces down 450 prophets of Baal in a cosmic challenge. 1 Kings chapter 18 records the events. But you remember them. There's a challenge that Elijah gives. I will make a sacrifice to the one true God. You prepare a sacrifice to Baal, your false idol. And then let's both pray and ask our God and whoever answers with fire. He is the one true Lord of this land. And the others will suffer the consequences. And so the sacrifices are prepared. But before Elijah, and and you remember in the futility and vanity, the 450 prophets of Baal, regardless of how frantic they get in their dancing and convorting and their wicked necromancy and seances and cutting themselves and crying out and hollering to beat the band, making utter demonic fools of themselves, these 450 prophets eventually collapse in exhaustion, their God powerless to answer. And then one lone man, dressed in the ragged clothing of an outcast, approaches with 12 stones that he carries and lugs over to this position, places them carefully, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and so to make a sacrifice representing on behalf of all God's people. And the animal is prepared, Elijah sets it on the altar, but his preparations are not finished. He gathers water. And he pours it on the sacrifice. There's a ditch around the perimeter and he fills it up. So the fuel, the animal, and the environment of that sacrifice are absolutely waterlogged. What is Elijah doing? 
Well, he's preparing these circumstances in a certain way. And perhaps you could say it like this. Elijah does everything in his power, everything in his power to diminish the probability of this event taking place, waterlogging the sacrifice and the altar. So when God does answer with fire, it will be that much more spectacular. The glory of God in this dark hour where it seems impossible is greater manifest when the fire consumes not only the sacrifice, but licks up the very water itself in the trench, the fuel, the sacrifice, everything. These circumstances only serve to magnify the greatness of God when heavenly fire fell and consumed everything, water and all. In the case of the last-ditch efforts of Christ's enemies at his death and burial, they take it on themselves to do the same. They're, they're doing, in fact, in their wickedness and their rebellion, everything in their power to try to prevent the decree of God in the resurrection of his Son. So in their last-ditch efforts at Christ's death and burial, they take it upon themselves to prevent God's purposes from coming to pass. Are they successful? Absolutely not. In fact, the opposite is the case. Every extensive measure that they take to protect the tomb, to keep the body inside, to place a guard in front of it, fully armed with the authority of, of the Roman guard and so on, every effort they take only serves to magnify the glory of God when he is raised from the dead anyway. They're taking every conceivable action to stand in the way of God's plan for his Messiah, yet their wicked efforts only serve in the final accounting to magnify his glory. And so we see the legacy of Christ's enemies is characterized by this idea. In the darkest of circumstances, in the most virulent of foes, in the most rebellious of peoples, these circumstances ultimately only serve to magnify the greatness of God. If we are surrounded by such rebels today, take heart, faithful saint. You have only to wait for God's due course and perfect time. They will be turned back in their efforts, and everything they did to thwart the work of God will only serve to greater magnify His glory. This is the ultimate legacy of Christ's enemies. Notice in our text today the legacy of Christ's enemies as follows. First of all, they concede worldly authority. They concede to worldly authority. Christ's enemies in their frantic, desperate measures to protect themselves, to continue their idol worship, to stand in the way of God's will, in their unrepentant, hard-hearted rebellion, they end up affirming worldly authorities over Christ himself. The nation of Rome and its king and its governor, who they hated before, uh, moments before or years before because of the tyranny that they were under, suddenly became the enemy of their enemy, therefore their friend, and so they concede to worldly authority. The legacy of Christ's enemies goes further in our text today. They condemn Christian teaching. The teaching, the work and person of Christ, they condemn it openly. And thirdly, they conspire to preempt the gospel. Those are the three main categories of action that I see before us in our text today, the legacy of Christ's enemies. First of all, note how they concede to worldly authority. Again, in our text, Matthew 27, 62, notice these first two verses. Next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gather before who? Pilate. Who is Pilate? He's the Roman governor. He is the one in charge of executing the authority of Rome over these Hebrews, over these Israelites who have a proud heritage and national identity that goes back far beyond the origins of Rome and is much more rooted and grounded in their national interests than anything Rome could supplant or provide, yet here they are gathered before him. They're bowing to the authority of Pilate, that is to say, because they have a request. They concede to the pagan worldly tyrant, and they have this to say, verse 63. Sir, wait, who are they, uh, who are they uh, referring to as sir? Pilate. A term of respect, a term of authority. Sir, greater one, more important one, the one who holds our future in your hands, that is to say, we remember how that imposter, wait, who is the imposter in their view? Jesus Christ said, while he was alive, after three days, 
I will rise. Notice how the enemies of Christ concede to worldly authority. And you need look no further than the terms they use to ascribe to the worldly authority versus Christ. The worldly authority, they respect, they revere. They refer to him as sir. Sir, we have a request. You know that imposter. Christ is the imposter and Pilate is sir. This is completely upside down. Pilate himself is called as a magistrate to rule justly. He knows that Christ is innocent. He has shown himself to be an imposter when against his better judgment, he caves to the peer pressure of the priests and other leaders and condemns Jesus to death. We've read it already in the same chapter. Verse 11, Jesus stood before the governor. The governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He goes on, Jesus giving no answer. Pilate answers the crowd. He says, it says in the text, verse 18, he knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. That is, this is a false trial. Jesus is falsely accused. He is being asked to condemn an innocent man. What shall I do with this Jesus, which is called the Christ? He asks, he's trying to wager a bargain, negotiate with them to trade for Barabbas and notorious criminals so that Christ can go free. They all answer him, his blood be on us and our children. We will take responsibility. Nevertheless, send this man to his death. So they scourged him. Pilate had him scourged and delivered up to be crucified. The people, though they take on the responsibility of the condemnation of Christ, nevertheless, Pilate is no less guilty. He is the imposter. Yet the enemies of Christ refer to him as sir. They approach him as the one who has the power to help them in their wicked deeds. They don't approach Christ. They don't submit to Him. They don't say, Sir, Lord, what must I do to be saved? They don't humble and bow before Him and say, How can I have salvation? How can I have eternal life? Instead, they appeal to the earthly tyrant in order to preserve their idolatry and their self-interest and, con- and continue in their efforts to prevent Jesus' power from having any effect on them. What is their motive in doing so? Well, their motive in doing so is that they might continue, as we've said, in their idolatry. This method of appealing to the authority, it was a convenient appeal for them because of their immediate desires. If, as we look to this tendency for those who are acting in an antichrist way to concede to worldly authority, it strikes me that there are usually two motives. One is, there's access to, in appealing to worldly authorities, immediate power. We appeal to the wrong authorities sometimes because it seems to us that they have immediate and tangible power. They're the ones who can help us now. Or, we are threatened by that immediate power. We concede the worldly authority because... They, after all, bear the sword. They seem so strong and can threaten our life in a moment, so therefore we concede the authority. In John chapter 19, we see further behind the scenes into the mentality of those who condemned Christ. And in this case, as they are seeking their best interest, they end up exalting the worldly authority at the expense of Christ and it's even more dramatic in this text, John 19, 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Speaking of Jesus, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So you see they're appealing to Pilate. If you want to retain, or if you, want, if you do not want a competitor toward your rule, you ought to condemn this man. In other words, they're affirming the authority of Pilate in order to condemn the man who had authority over all kings, Jesus Christ. Verse 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And he delivered him over, he delivered him over to them to be crucified. 
So you see, the enemies of Christ replace His authority with earthly authorities. The legacy of Christ's enemies is they bow before the worldly kings and they deny the authority of the King of Kings. Jesus Christ rules at the right hand of the Father and there are consequences for this kind of behavior. Yet people in their short-sighted wickedness, looking only to what's in front of them, are more apt in their sinfulness to respect, to honor, to uh, consider the immediate power of the state, of the king, of the worldly claim to authority. The immediate power to grant them what they need and want, if they feel they need and want, or the immediate power to punish them if they don't affirm their authority. Thus, in this example, in, Christ, in the account of Christ in Calvary at His trial and beyond, people are worshiping Caesar. They are denying Christ, spitting in His face, and worshiping Pilate. You are the King of kings. We have no other king. Whenever anyone denies Christ, they deny Him for another authority. They are worshiping another power. Might be the powers that be, the state, the all-promising uh, socialist, uh, in, you know, incrementally a socialist state that we have today. It might be themselves, their own autonomy. I want to be the captain of my own soul and I see the sovereignty of my choices as the ultimate that I will submit to and the only thing that I will uphold as power to shape my future. Any one of these things are a concession to worldly authority, ourselves or others. When we deny Christ, like Esau, we trade our pottage of what worldly authority promises rather than submit to the Lord who actually holds our future in His hands. This was true then. This is true now. People today serve their purposes and their own security by conceding to worldly authorities. At, at this time, you see the purposes that conceding to Pilate served. Why were they going to Pilate and buttering him up saying, Sir, remember this and, and making their appeal? Well, this is what they wanted. Verse 65, uh, Pilate said, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So the appeal to Pilate, affirming his authority, was to selfishly gain something that was useful to them. They wanted to preserve their identity and their security and their influence and position as rulers of these people by, under the authority of Rome, and with the blessing of the wicked Pilate, taking on a guard of soldiers and placing it in front of where Jesus was buried, sealing that stone and defending this place with the army, as it were. This served their purposes to concede to worldly authorities to secure the tomb and therefore their own security. They were striving to secure their own position in society. And for those who do not know Christ, this becomes a primary value and a driving force. They will concede to worldly authorities for the promise of security. This virtually governs all of our politics these days. So often the authority of Christ is denied and authority to the state is conceded for the promise of security. I'm sure a thousand examples come into your mind, so I'll spare you listing them. It's an easy application to make. It is the legacy of Christ's enemies. It's as true now as it was then. And whatever form it takes, it's important to recognize this tendency that we might, even at cost of our own self, our own security and assurance, temporally speaking, be willing to lay down our lives in worship of our Savior, even if it means the mockery and derision of the crowds around us, or even going to a martyr's death if that is God's will. Secondly, or again under this same idea, the church today is often want to capitulate to worldly authorities because they recognize the immediate power over them. It's so easy to go along with what those who have the sword say to you. It is so hard to disagree when our own life and livelihood, our comfort and convenience are on the line. But this was the testimony of our Christian forebears who did not fear life and limb when they brought the gospel past the borders of Israel in the first place, even unto martyr's death in many of their cases. Let us learn from this testimony 
as we've seen in Hebrews 11, of those who spared not their own lives to proclaim the glory of Christ so that our legacy is not one of Christ's enemies, but legacy of faithful service to his kingdom, even if it means laying down our own life. Now, I mentioned to you a reference from last week's message that today's account is really an application of. Last week's message, we expounded Psalm 70. David maps out in Psalm 70 in this symmetrical psalm in beautiful words and phrases the characteristics of Messiah's detractors. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. What is the characteristic of the detractors of the Messiah, the rebels against the Lord, the worldly, the legacy of Christ's enemies? They seek my life. That is to say, they seek the life of the righteous. They're jealous of the position of Christ and his followers. They desire their hurt, it goes on to say. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. A direct allusion to what was going on as Mark 15 records is listed in verse 3. Let them turn back from their shame who say, aha, aha, mockery, words, exclamations of derision. So the Messiah's detractors in Psalm 70 are the ones who seek the life of the Messiah, desire the hurt of the Messiah and his followers, and they, they mock him, deride him in their own condemnation and their own snide remarks. In their own derision, they say, aha, aha. Yet in Psalm 70, it tells us what is their end. Those who mock the Lord, they will be put to shame and confusion. They will be turned back and brought to dishonor. They will be turned back because of their shame. This was true then. This is true now. It was true in David's time. It was true and we see it at the crucifixion of Christ. And we will see it in our day as well. Perhaps the best quote to this end that I found is from a theologian named Barnes. Listen to what he says. We cannot but be struck with the wisdom of God in ordering the circumstances of the Savior's burial in such a manner as to avoid the possibility of deception. Had all this been done by his friends, it might have been said that they only pretended to secure the tomb. In other words, if it hadn't been the enemies of Christ who sealed the stone and set the guard, someone might have said, oh, his friends pretended to seal the tomb, but in the night they stole the body. It might have been said that they only pretended to secure the tomb and only pretended that he was dead. But he, speaking of Christ, was adjudged to be dead by the Jews themselves. The enemies of Christ affirmed Christ was dead. Pilate was satisfied that this was the fact. They had their own way about his burial. He was buried alone. The pieces of his sepulcher was made sure, expressly to prevent his being removed. And they placed around him a guard in their own judgment, large enough to prevent his being taken away by force or strength. His very enemies, therefore, so Christ's very enemies, therefore, took every possible precaution to place his resurrection beyond the possibility of suspicion of fraud and imposture. And those precautions were the very means of furnishing the most striking proof that his death burial, and resurrection were not impositions, but most affecting, awful, and cheering realities. What was going on in these events? The darkest of circumstances were setting themselves up to serve to magnify the Lord. All of these precautions that they took to seal the tomb, to set a guard, they had Christ's body in their own possession. The enemies of Christ verified that he was dead, and then they set their, took their own great measures to assure that his body wasn't stolen. All these things only served to prove the supernatural authority and power of Jesus Christ when he came through that stone and his resurrection body, and the angel later rolled it away, the seal was broken, and those Carrying those swords, that armed guard was blown back by the power of God represented in our passage that we read earlier, where an angel with a light like lightning and an earthquake underneath his feet showed that the tomb was empty and no seal, no sword, and no cadre of enemies could keep Christ buried. What was happening? This was Psalm 70 coming true. 
This was those who seek the life of Christ being put to shame and confusion. This was those who desired the hurt of the Messiah and his followers to be turned back and brought to dishonor. This was though an example, a fulfillment of those who say, aha, aha, being turned back because of their shame. This is the legacy of Christ's enemies. Secondly, the legacy of Christ's enemies. They condemn Christian teaching. Why, did the, why were the Pharisees and the priests so incensed and wanted to take such great measures to prevent even the illusion that Christ had risen from the dead? Well, they make their case before Pilate in verse 64 of our main text again by saying, Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And note carefully this last phrase. And the last fraud will be worse, worse than the first. The last fraud will be worse than the first. What were they doing? In, the, in this phrase, they were condemning the teaching of Christ, the person and the message, the ministry and the proclamation of Jesus. What was the first fraud? Well, the first fraud was the teaching, the person, the ministry, the influence of Jesus Christ. The more Jesus spoke, the more the Pharisees' religious leaders heard of his miracles, the more they despised, the more they were incensed, the more bloodthirsty they became, the more resentful their hearts, uh, their resentful hearts boiled all the more within them, the more they heard of what they called here the first fraud. The first fraud was their terminology, their absolutely arbitrary and unwarranted adjective to describe the glories of Christ. How do you call it fraudulent when 5,000 hungry people are suddenly filled with the lunch of one little boy, a few loaves and fishes? How do you call it fraudulent when Lazarus himself, three days in the tomb, is raised miraculously from the dead? Ironically, it is these very accounts that moved them to this rebellious end. They hated who Jesus was and who he claimed to be. They wanted to characterize his teaching, his ministry, and his person as fraudulent and illegitimate. And every miracle and every authoritative prophecy, every fulfillment of the Old Testament stood as testimony against them. But were they compelled to bow before this witness? No. With each authoritative milestone in Christ's ministry, they only grew more and more enraged. To prove this, we remark, and it's ironic because it's associated with resurrection itself, in the case of Lazarus, an example of this in John 11, this unhinged rage that we see, this absolute irrational anger that's stirring within the religious leaders. In John 11, as we see this parallel passage in verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Notice, they affirm that Jesus is performing signs. It's empirically verified beyond a shadow of a doubt. They have just heard that Jesus, by multiple witnesses and testimony, rose a dead man from the grave. So this creates a big problem for them. They care more about their self-interest than they do the empirically verifiable proven evidence of Jesus alive and well in the flesh, second person of the Godhead, the Messiah, here to save them. They care more about themselves. And so their irrational idolatry moves them to gather a council. And what do they do? They find out that they need, or do they seek to find out who Jesus Christ is and send a contingency to learn more and then submit to him? Obviously, he eclipses them immeasurably in power as he can raise the dead to life. No. We let him go on like this, they say in verse 48. Everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The enemies of Christ cared more about their place, their privilege, their influence, their self-identity 
in what they had accrued, their little kingdom that they had built for themselves. And the way that they were able to order society around them. They cared more about this stranglehold on their social order than they did anything that said, you are a fool, you are a sinner, repent, turn from that idolatry, confess faith in someone over you. But one of them, Caiaphas, was the high priest that year said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. There's an editorial note. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. So these wicked rebels are prophesying from their own lips inadvertently, even in their plans to kill the Christ because he had just raised a man from the dead. They are fools and they are self-incriminating. Verse 52, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Uh, Caiaphas is prophesying in spite of himself. Verse 53, this interesting note, shocking. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The true gospel, Jesus Christ preached without compromise in all he is and represents, is the greatest threat to the identity, the security, the idolatry of man, regardless of his state, king or pauper, today as it was then. Then and now, Christ represents a threat to our idols. Think of Acts 19. Paul is bringing this message in Ephesus, and there is a labor union, the Silversmiths Guild, that they rise up to oppose and they incite a riot to impose this message. Why? Because Jesus Christ threatened their very industry. They made idols to the goddess Diana. Who knows if they even worshipped her? But they certainly profited off the tourists who did and wanted to buy their little trinkets. So when the gospel came, it threatened their livelihood, threatened their identity. And rather than submit to the power of this message to set them free from their dependence on making little idolatrous trinkets to line their pockets with food for money for food for tomorrow, they rose up in anger and incited a riot against the only Messiah and Savior who could save them from their sin and grant them eternal life. This is true then, this is true now. Uh, as Providence would have it last week, I used Bernie Sanders, a senator in our uh, government as an example of the kind of hatred towards the Christian worldview that was evident when he reacted in a cross-examination of a po potential political appointee. The appointee was a Christian had written that Christ was the only way and all others, including Muslims, unless they repent and believe in him, stand condemned. How is this not Islamophobia, he raged. And so the man did his best to defend his position and so on. But it wasn't just, but days later, when an individual, you probably heard, took a gun, and he went to a Republican, where Republicans were practicing the opposition party in a baseball game, and he targeted them and sought to destroy these men. Well, come to find out on all his social media profiles, this perpetrator of this violent crime was a Bernie Sanders supporter. He was a volunteer in his campaign. And, you know, Bernie did what he needed to do. He went out and condemned the activity and so on. But it struck me as ironic. Just a few days prior, Bernie Sanders was condemning and scoffing the very worldview that condemns violence for an opinion that you disagree with. Bernie Sanders was condemning the very authoritative position that would allow him to say shooting your or my political opponents is wrong. Thou shalt not murder. Carved in stone above the very halls and auspices of our government buildings which these rebels inhabit is the testimony to the absolute authority of God's word that shooting your political opponents is sin and is to be condemned. This is another example of how today, even as then, Christ himself threatens our very self-identity and our idol worship. You see, if politicians like Bernie Sanders or any of the others, Republican or Democrat, if they don't bow before Christ or in the call for them to bow before Christ, they may well feel that that threatens my authority 
If I must defer to him, then this policy I can't pursue. If I must defer to him, to Christ, then my constituents might get angry. If I must defer to him, then I will be mocked by my colleagues. I won't have it. I've pursued this career. I've spent all this money in law school. I've climbed the ladder of social and economic success. Last thing I'm going to do is fall down a few rungs now. And so Bernie Sanders and others condemn the teaching of Christ that in him alone is authority, power, and righteousness. But notice in the example I gave, the Psalm 70 effect. It wasn't but days later, and this condemnation of the very worldview that calls murder wrong seeks to confuse and to shame the very senator who condemned it when someone in his name virtually tried to take the lives of the opposition party. Those who seek his life and desire, seek the life of the righteous, those who seek to profit themselves at the expense of Christ, those who desire the hurt of him and his followers, those who say, aha, aha, you Islamophobic, bigoted Christian you, what will happen? Well, if they do not repent, they will be put to shame and confusion. They will be turned back and brought to dishonor. They will be turned back because of their shame. The message of Christ is the same now as it was then. Repent or be judged in hell eternal. Condemnation of the Christian teaching was so popular then against all empirical evidence to the contrary and so it is right now. I listened to a psychologist this week and he was befuddled, himself not a Christian as I understand it. He was befuddled. He said to himself in the end to those who were hearing his lecture, how could these stories that are so hard to understand in the Bible be so impossible for us to forget? How could these stories that are so hard to understand, you could add, and that the likes of this culture hates so much be so hard to get rid of, be so hard to forget? Why is it that the teaching and the instruction of Christ, the Great Commission, has survived when the commission of His enemies has failed? Well, it's the Psalm 70 effect. Over time, the word of Christ continues marching forward, taking ground for his kingdom. This psychologist says, I have to determine that the New Testament is at least psychologically true. He recognized that there is something about it that has the ring of longevity, infallibility, and authority because it is beyond compare. It has stood the test of time. Everybody else, in spite of their vain attempts, proved a failure and foolish when they tried to deny Christ and His teaching. But when it comes to the Word of God, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but it endures forever. It's not just psychologically true, it is absolutely true. Final point this morning, the legacy of Christ's enemies conspire to preempt the gospel. In the second section of our main text today, in verse 11, there's kind of, uh, you see a relationship between these two accounts. It's behind the scenes where the enemies are scheming again. And while they were going, it says in verse 11, Behold, some of the guard went into the city. They told the chief priests all that had taken place. Namely, Christ had risen from the dead. Verse 12, When they assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, His uh, disciples came by night and stole Him away while we were asleep. Huh, they're really going to believe that. Remember what they did? They went to great extremes to place a guard, seal the stone, and everything to make the tomb secure. And now they're going to try to say, they're going to peddle the lie with the rumor, oh, his disciples came and stole the body. Notice verse 14, if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Even though this is obviously false, if the governor asks you what gives, this doesn't line up with the circumstances, there is no evidence to the effect of what you are proclaiming. Hey, don't worry about it. We'll bribe him too. What were the means at the disposal of the people to conspire to preempt the gospel? It wasn't the truth. We have the truth. Christians have the truth. And the truth will set you free. And the truth will endure. Sometimes money and rumors seem more powerful than the truth. But in time, they're always proven to be inferior. They had, having given a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers to bribe them to tell a lie. They said, go tell the people. And then they implied, if they came in trouble with the law, they would scrape up more money from the temple treasury to bribe them too. So, 
verse 15, they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So with money, bribery, the promise of personal gain, and with lies, they sought to preempt the gospel. Would they prove successful? Would they prove successful? You know, you can go on the internet today and there's mythicists, they call them, who try to make the claim that Jesus' body was stolen or it was a grand illusion. They're generally laughed off the intellectual stage, even by secular scholars. In spite of all the money they could scrape together, and the rumors and the willingness of the people to believe such a thing, all of these motives, they proved ineffective. Their conspiracy to preempt the gospel utterly failed. They couldn't control the narrative in spite of Satan's propaganda with all this money to back it up. This attempt is happening now, just as it was then. Think of our whole culture. Think of how many aspects of our economy are basically money to promote lies, to preempt the gospel. Virtually all popular entertainment, television programming, music, and all of these award shows, and all of these standards of academic success and career pursuits, and all of this, just as it was then, so it is now. Money and rumors trying to preempt the gospel. There is no Christ. He didn't come, this and that and the other, yet it proves a failure. Now, in the course of the early church, there was a wise man named Gamaliel, and I call this Gamaliel's test. He said to the people who were beating the early messengers, they were uh, seeking to stamp out, message the truth to the con- contrary, trying to uphold their rumor with money, and not only that, but with tyrannical, uh, uh, afflicting and tyrannical ways, the, the bearers of the very truth. In Acts chapter 5, we uh, interrupt them in progress, and we see this in verse 34. It says, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood by and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So these are, the, uh, these are the disciples who are going forth proclaiming the gospel and they're paying for it with stripes on their back and imprisonment and so on, this horrific persecution. So wait, 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 says Gamaliel, a teacher of the law. He says, put them outside. I would need to talk to you. He said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days... Theodos rose up, claiming to be someone, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas Galilean rose up in the days of the census, drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God... You will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to, to be opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they called the disciples, the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. When they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That was the truth. Gamaliel's words 2,000 years later are proven absolutely true. The man was wise. This plan, if it is undertaken of man, it will fail. This message of Christianity, this message that Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, became human flesh, lived and dwelt among us, took on our sin, lived a sinless life, died in our stead, was crucified for us, rose from the dead, demonstrating power over sin and the grave. And now this message is repent and believe and place your faith in Him and bow before His authority exercised at the right hand of the Father until all nations bow before His incrementally expanding kingdom under the praise of His great name, wherein He will transform this world into new Jerusalem. That message continues to this day. Why? Because it wasn't man's idea. Meanwhile, every attempt regardless of the rumor and regardless of the money and regardless of the persecution, fails. 
And oftentimes, when those efforts are increased, so does the gospel. This is the testimony of history. The last-ditch efforts of Satan at the time of Christ's death, even now in history, will prove to only magnify the greatness of our God. This is the Psalm 70 effect. In future weeks, we will notice Great Commission versus Great Commission. There were special instructions we just read of rumor and lie that the people were supposed to spread. And so they were paid to say the disciples stole the body. Well, Matthew 28 closes with special instructions that Jesus himself, the resurrected Christ, gave his disciples and apostles to spread. And that message would turn the world upside down. Why? Because it indeed was true that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to Christ. Praise the Lord. Thus we behold, and as we behold, may we proclaim that in the darkest of circumstances, whether we're remembering them in Scripture at this time or in our experience now, in dark, the darkest of circumstances ultimately only serve to magnify the greatness of God. Let us proclaim Him without fear. Dear Jesus, we thank You that when You came, that You fulfilled perfectly the will of the Father. And though the forces of Satan and all his allies, mankind himself in his wickedness and sin, stood at every turn to oppose you, that his efforts were defeated. We thank you, Jesus, that in your defeat of our sin on Calvary, we find our salvation. We thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. We thank you that your love, your sovereign grace extended to us and that you first loved us, therefore we love you. Lord, as we see ourselves before we knew you, conceding to worldly authorities, condemning your own teaching and conspiring to preempt the gospel, we thank you that nevertheless the message of truth transformed our own hearts. Build our faith by our testimony, most of all by the authority of Scripture that you have plans and purposes through us to do the same, even in this wicked, lawless, idolatrous generation. Lord, let us be encouraged and emboldened, like the saints of old, to bring the message of the cross forward, recognizing that all your enemies will ultimately, Lord, be shamed and confused, turned back, brought to dishonor, turned back because of their shame. Yet you are magnificent and glorious, powerful and true. And so we confess you as King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.